Well, it's super great to welcome you to our final session in the Emotional Health Stream. Uh, we're going to be kicking off in about five minutes or so, uh, but to you who are here already, just, just um, a couple of things uh, to be going on from here for. I hope you've enjoyed the sessions that we've run so far. Certainly got really fond memories of this, of this week um, with uh, Pete Hughes on our first day. Um, we're busy talking about emotional health through um, the Sermon on the Mount. And then uh, we had a great time with Ariana Walker running with the horses um, on the second day. And, uh, and then we were yesterday into looking after the teenage brain. And uh, that was very exciting with Kate Middleton and Steve Marshall-Taylor. It's just been so exciting seeing the incredible engagement in this area of um, life. And we, what we would love for you all is that you don't feel that you come to focus, you get some teaching on emotional, mental health, spirituality, and then you kind of go away and you're lost in a void. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit more about um, Kintsugi Hope with Patrick and Diane uh, in a few minutes. But quite a few people have said, what books? If I was going to go to the bookshop um, whilst I'm here, last-minute purchases uh, before I go home. Um, Kate Middleton's written a brilliant book called Refuel, which we didn't get to promote yesterday, um, which is just a really practical book around stress and um, really helpful she talks to a, an adult audience, but also a teen audience, and this is just a really helpful book, um, well worth grabbing a copy. It's called How to Balance Work-Life, Faith, and Church Without Burning Out. So super helpful, um, that one. If you are here and you're thinking, I've really enjoyed um, engaging more with emotional mental health stuff, then um, Patrick and Diane and a number of other people, including Kate Middleton, are going to be speaking at the Lead Well Conference, which is in London on the 29th of September. It's just a one-day conference on leading with emotional and mental health in mind. Uh, we've got some amazing speakers. Beth Redmond's going to be speaking. Dr. Rob Waller's speaking. Uh, a number of real experts in the field, psychiatrists, psychologists, and church leaders. It's just £20 for the day. It's, really, it's a really good value day. Um, it's being hosted kindly by Holy Trinity Brompton. Uh, it's, at the Onslow, it's going to be at the Onslow Square site. Cannot recommend it highly enough. And if you've got a church leader, uh, if you're involved in a church and you don't think your church leader's equipped or is necessarily resourced in the area of mental and emotional health, pick up one of these flyers that are on your seat and then do, do hand it on to him or members of your leadership team. If you're a leader in the home or you're a leader in business, you're a leader. So you're very welcome to come along. It's not expressly for church leaders. It's something for everyone. You're going to hear quite a lot about, um, we're going to talk specifically Patrick and Dan about anxiety, depression, and, and finding, uh, being able to be honest over the silence that so often pervades um, the church and the world as far as emotional and mental health is concerned. Their charity, Kintsugi Hope, is a relatively new charity, but we're partnering with Kintsugi Hope to engage with people in this area. And um, Mind and Soul Foundation, which I run alongside Kate Middleton and Dr. Rob Waller, uh, is a resource which we're very much partnering on and is filled with thousands of pieces of resource for you, um, talks, videos, podcasts, uh, articles, uh, opportunities for um, lobbying, and uh, you can just check us out, mindandsoulfoundation.org, and we're on social at UK on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So again, that's on the reverse side of this flyer. A couple of people asked me if I've written anything uh, of, that they might want to have a read of, and there's a few books in the bookshop here that I've written again with Dr. Rob Waller. The first one's the Perfectionism book for anyone who's struggling with issues around perfectionism. That's procrastinating as well as overachieving. And uh, it's just a helpful way to freedom through issues around perfectionism. We've also got the Guilt book, which is, seems like it's probably our worst seller, unsurprisingly. Who would buy a book called The Guilt Book? Um, but it's, it's, I think it's one of the best books we've written. And it's a book about those persistent feelings of guilt that often appear when you... Um, you know you're forgiven by Jesus, but you just don't feel forgiven. And when you feel like you're in a cycle of always feeling bad about the stuff of life. So that might be one for you. Um, remember that guilt is, a, is, is one of the byproducts of depression. And we have to be able to deal with the motion of guilt in order to get free. And then the worry book. If you're struggling with anxiety or worry at all, then this is another one that you might be interested in. Having a look at really helpful cognitive behavioral therapy and Christian theology to lead you to freedom in that area. So there's a few things that you might want to have a look at, but um, today is largely about my dear friend uh, Patrick and his wonderful wife, 
Diane Regan. And um, I've been friends with Patrick for probably about 10 years now. And um, me and Patrick first met uh, properly at something called the Windsor Gathering, which was a gathering of younger leaders. Um, Patrick previously ran XLP, which is one of the most influential uh, youth charities in the UK. Um, it's done the most remarkable work on some of the toughest estates, particularly in London. Uh, they have been celebrated by um, Prince William and Princess Kate. Um, they have been uh, sort of celebrated by various mayors and governments and um, remarkably they've found favour on all levels. But Patrick's been really at the front line of, uh, of some of the toughest issues of gang violence on our streets and uh, he is someone who knows an awful lot about suffering, both in the public realm and in his own life. And it's been my privilege for him to be my prayer partner for a number of years. A dear friend, we've walked some difficult roads together and I can't recommend him to you more highly. Um, recently, Patrick's left XLP uh, in safe hands, but decided to move into this area of uh, emotional health, particularly engaging with people uh, through their scars and sufferings. Uh, there's a couple of books here I want to recommend. No Ceiling to Hope It is really uh, stories around uh, his journey through XLP, stories from some of the most dangerous places in the world. He's also done some work in Trenchtown in Jamaica, which is, again, pretty remarkable, and you'll hear more from that later on. His newest book, which is an incredible book, is called Honesty Over Silence. It's in the bookshop. It's in a remarkable book. It's so moving, and it really encapsulates a lot of what you're here today, and I can't recommend it highly enough to you. There's another great book in the bookshop that I wrote the forward to called When Faith Gets Shaken, and I remiss of me. I didn't pick one up, but I'll try and get one before the end of the session. It's also an incredible book. So um, Patrick's written um, really liberating stuff for us to engage with. So I'd love you to put your hands together warmly as we welcome onto the stage Patrick Regan, and Diane's going to be joining him a little later on. Thank you. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. Great. Well, it's really good to be here. Apparently, I'm here on the hottest day, which is um, a, a great... And uh, so it's such a privilege and honour to be um, working alongside Will, as we say, we've known each other for quite a long time now. So thank you so much for coming on one of the hottest afternoons. It's fantastic. Put your hand up if you have got a Facebook page. Put your hand up if you've got a Twitter page. Snapchat. Don't know what Snapchat is. Hands up if you think it's all of the devil. There's a few of you there. We'll pray for you. That's okay. Within social media, you can um, follow along. You can ask questions. You can um, let us know what's going on um, through that as well. But I want to look at this topic called honesty over silence. And I guess I want to be really real and really honest. And, you know, I speak at a lot of Christian festivals and they're brilliant. Sometimes I think we can fall into the danger of always communicating the show real. Here's 25 minutes of spectacular story after spectacular story. And, you know, we need those spectacular stories. They're fantastic because they get the faith up. But as well as a spectacular story, maybe we need to know the behind the scenes. And uh, because those spectacular stories aren't usual. And, uh, and sometimes I want to be real and I want to be honest and I want to be vulnerable. So I hope that's going to be okay with you um, as we look at this honesty over silence, looking at anxiety. Now, tell me this. Who's ever done this? You get a headache and you go to Dr. Google for a diagnosis. Anyone ever done that? And then you go to your wife or your husband or your partner or your friend, I've got a really, really deadly disease. And you're thinking, no, you haven't. You've got a headache. Take paracetamol. And the fact is this. Why do we do that? We do that because in life, we crave certainty. We want things to be nailed down straight away. I went through one of those stages in my life about eight years ago now where everything went wrong at once. It was like a perfect storm of things going wrong. Has anyone ever been through one of those stages in your life. Um, my wife talks about it like being Tetris. Do you remember the game Tetris? Um, blocks fall out of the sky and you try and get them all in line. Then another lot come and they come quicker and they come quicker and they come quicker. And then eventually you just can't cope anymore. And uh, I got diagnosed with a degenerative knee condition, which means I needed to have this big external frame put around my leg. You can see my leg coming up here on the screen here. There you go. That was a nice intake of breath there. I enjoyed that. That was on both legs, and uh, it was one of these uh, situations where um, I was going through this, and my daughter was really sick, my dad had cancer, everything was just becoming too much for me. Um, I've got four children, and people are like, how on earth are your kids going to cope? If you look at this next slide, you'll see this is my son Daniel, 
And that's Han Solo and Luke Skywalker at the front there. That's Star Wars Lego. He's turned it into a spaceship, ladies and gentlemen. And then, of course, there was Christmas. There's Abigail, as long as her face is in the picture. Hey. And then, just before I had my second operation, limb reconstruction surgery, Abigail broke her leg. So here we are, both on Zimmer frames. And my son, Caleb, there, always likes to tell people, we're just about to have a Zimmer frame race, and he won the race. Well done, Caleb. And, uh, and so what happened was, as I was doing all this stuff, as I was going through this period of my life where things just seemed to be going wrong, I really started struggling with anxiety. And, and I realize now that actually I'd always struggled with anxiety, and this was like rocket fuel. You know, sometimes trauma is like rocket fuel to anxiety, isn't it? And uh, it's always there, but then something happens that just makes it escalate and get bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, so I wrote this book called When Faith Gets Shaken, which did incredibly well. And I was just inundated with letters, with Facebook messages, with emails from people going, I've never read anything by a Christian before that's so honest. And I realized that honesty breeds more honesty. And, uh, and we need to be more authentic and more honest in our communication. And then so we turned the book into a tour and a DVD and we started realizing there was this real connection with people. And actually, non-Christians were starting to um, email us as well, asking us their questions. And there was this one illustration that really got to me. And uh, we've named our charity over it. It's, uh, it's called Kintsuji, where basically, if you take a pot and you break it, I try and mend it with superglue. And the whole idea of the superglue is we try and hide the cracks. We try and pretend it's Okay. In Japan, what they do is they put a gold powder in the glue. So instead of hiding the cracks, they make a feature of the cracks. Arguably, the object becomes more beautiful than it was before. It certainly becomes more unique. You will not find a pot on planet Earth that looks like that. And you know, isn't that true of our lives that beauty comes from brokenness? Beauty comes not always from having it all together. Those gold threads are what make us unique. And that sometimes when we share our stories, we share in our common humanity. It's interesting, when I uh, do some training on mental health, you know, I often say to the audience, put your hand up if you've ever broken a bone. Everyone puts their hands up. Anyone broken a bone? You can put your hand up. It's fine. We, we can boast about broken bones sometimes. And then you ask the audience, you don't have to put your hands up because I don't embarrass you, but like, should there be an embarrassment? Who's ever been on antidepressants? And you know, actually, it's about the same. And the fact is, we've got to start having these honest conversations in church and remove some of the stigma and the shame, because we are not on our own. You probably have heard these stats all week. One in four young people in the UK, one in four young people in the UK will experience a mental health problem each year. In England, one in six report experience a common mental health problem such as anxiety and depression. And, you know, I've listened to so many talks on anxiety, and I've heard, read so many books, and it all gets really, really technical. But what is an anxiety, really? Um, I've got a friend, he might be here, actually, but um, he often says that anxiety is a bit like, um, if you imagine a cat in a bath, and it's scrambling to get out, there's no water in the bath, and the look of fear in its eyes, or that feeling of falling and not being able to take anything, not being able to get hold of everything. So these aren't very technical um, uh, definitions of anxiety, but maybe you could relate to some of these. Check this out. Anxiety is not being able to turn your brain off. It's the unanswered text message that kills us inside. It believes every negative scenario that you come up with. It's the inaccurate conclusions as your mind takes off and you have no chance to follow its lead. It's apologizing for things that don't require you to say sorry. It's self-doubt and lack of confidence. It's trying to fix something that isn't a problem. It's all the fear of failure and striving for perfection and then beating yourself up when you don't get there. It tells you you're wrong, they don't like you. It's constantly asking yourself the what if questions. Um, I look for definitions of anxiety and I actually think this is one of the best ones I've found in all my research. Um, it's a bit different. More than anything else, anxiety is caring. It's never wanting to hurt someone's feelings it's never wanting to do something wrong. More than anything, it's the want and the need to be simply be accepted and liked. So sometimes you try too hard. Sometimes you try too hard. I've done this talk a few times and uh, 
I've looked out as I said that bit, and I've often seen tears in people's eyes as they realize they're not mad. They just try too hard sometimes. And learning to accept that is okay, because anxiety is exhausting. It's never allowing your autopilot to kick in. You know, when a, a, a pilot flies from one place to the other, at some point he's got to put the autopilot on. Um, he can't just fly the whole way. But anxiety says, I'm never going to let you put the autopilot on. You have to keep going all the time. And then it becomes like an addiction. It becomes like wave after wave after wave. Anxiety says, there's something wrong with you. Anxiety says, you're not enough. I want to show you a very short clip now of someone describing anxiety. There is a word in this clip which you probably wouldn't normally hear in a Christian conference, but I couldn't edit it out, so please forgive me. Check this out. High-functioning anxiety looks like achievement, busyness, perfectionism. When it sneaks out, it transforms into nervous habits, nail-biting, foot-tapping, running my fingers through my hair. If you look close enough, you can see it in unanswered text messages, flakiness, nervous laughter, a snake slithering up my back, clamping its jaws shut where my shoulders beat my neck, punching the gut stomach aches like my body is confusing, answering an email with being attacked by a lion. High-functioning anxiety sounds like... I'm not good enough. I'm bad for I'm not good at my job. I'm wasting time. I'm so needy. My boyfriend thinks I'm needy. Why would I say that? What if they hate Why can't I have my shit together? I'm a fraud. Just good at I'm letting everybody I'm down. I'm letting myself Nobody down. here likes Bad me. friend. Bad sister. Bad daughter. Not good enough. Not good enough. All the while, it appears perfectly calm. It's always looking for the next outlet. Something to channel the never-ending energy. Writing. Running. List-making. Mindless tasks. Whatever keeps you busy. Doing jumping jacks in the kitchen. Dancing in the living room. Pretending it's for fun when really it's a choreographed routine of desperation. Trying to tire out the thoughts stuck in your head. It's silent anxiety attacks hidden by smiles. It's when answering a text impulsively and thoughtlessly is an act of bravery. It's finding your own humanity in the anxiety, in your weaknesses. It's trying to let the energy inspire you instead of bring you down. A good first step is staring at it straight on and calling it by its name. I think the last bit she says there, a good first step is looking at it straight on and calling it by its name. Um, The other area that I've been looking into and been struggling with myself is this whole area of depression. And again, I've never really heard anyone speak on it in a main stage meeting before. I was at Spring Harvest um, last April. Um, I was preaching on the last night in the big top and there's about three or four thousand people there. And I said, you know, whenever one talks about mental health, they always talk about it in terms of the past. You know, 20 years ago when I struggled with this. And, um, and I said, I've never heard anyone talk about it in a main meeting. I've heard loads of seminars done on it, but I've never heard anyone talk about it in a main meeting. And I've never heard them talk about it in the present. So there's always got to be a first time. So here we go. And you could hear a pin drop. And I was like, I really struggle sometimes with anxiety and depression. And it really gets to me. And I believe the lies that depression tells me. Have you ever believed some of these lies? Depression tries to convince us we're not actually ill. Depression tells us that everything is our fault. Depression tells us nobody cares or likes us. Depression tells us we're not good enough. Depression tells us we don't deserve things. Depression tells us we're a bad person. Depression tells us to be quiet. Depression tells us we're a burden. Depression tells us we don't deserve help and support. And depression tells us there is no hope. I don't know if you've come across an organization called Blurt. They're an absolutely brilliant organization. Um, They sent me these little cartoons the other day. Um, If you've ever had depression, you could probably relate to that one. Can you relate to Anyone relate to that one? Half the room is like, not again. And you know, because sometimes you you get that sinking feeling, don't you? And am I making sense to anyone? You are like, you're with me. You know, it, basically you get that sinking feeling and sometimes that dip can feel really long way down. Other times, when you learn to manage your symptoms, it's only a small dip. We like those sort of dips. <laughs> but the challenge is, sometimes it feels like, oh no, not again. Here's another one which I think you can relate to. Night and day. And uh, how difficult it is sometimes. When I was doing research for Honesty Over Silence, which I have to say I was only came out a couple of weeks ago and I'm incredibly nervous. I think you're going to think I'm backslidden by the time you've read it all, but there you go. And, uh, but there was this uh, uh, chapter in there around um, letting go of stigma. And there's a brilliant book about clinical depression called The Curse of the Strong. 
And in it, the psychiatrist says that I can tell you the personal characteristics of someone that's suffering depression before they come into my room. Nine times out of ten, I've got it 100% on. The personal characteristics of someone who's suffering depression are often these. Moral strength, reliability, diligence, strong conscience, a strong sense of responsibility, a tendency to focus on the needs of others before one's own, sensitivity, vulnerable to criticism, self-esteem dependent on the evaluation of others. People that suffered from this, Oliver Cromwell, Abraham Lincoln, Winston Churchill, Vincent van Gogh, none of these people got better by Christians telling them to pull themselves together. You know, the challenge is, is these are not weak people. These are people that have just been strong for too long. And I've come to the conclusion that a lot of people that suffer from depression and anxiety have literally, and panic attacks, uh, they're not signs of weakness. They're signs of trying to remain strong for too long. And uh, I had someone, I was speaking at another festival yesterday, and she said, oh, I heard you do that about six months ago, that list. And actually totally changed my marriage. Because I went home, and then I suddenly understood my husband. And I explained this to him. And, uh, and we started reading stuff. And now the way we relate to each other is so, so different. And uh, apart from the guilt and the condemnation that we just used to feel, because we just used to feel rubbish about ourselves the whole time. Um, Rick and Kay Warren, most of you would have heard of them. And uh, there was a beautiful interview where Nikki Gumbel interviewed them at the um, HTB Leadership Conference uh, many years ago. And you'll remember that uh, their son, Matthew, at 27 years old, took his own life. And, uh, and it, was, you know, it was just so heartbreaking. They run this mega, mega church. And there was this quote which Kay Warren came out with, which I thought was just beautiful. She says this, Some of the most courageous people are the ones that live with strong depression. Since his death, I've heard from many depressed Christians, many feel ashamed because they come to church and their church tells them to pray a bit more, read their Bibles a bit more, or they have a sin to confess. When we do that, their suffering is minimized. The church needs to recognize the value of people with mental illness, what they bring and what they teach us about walking with God when it doesn't even feel good. I love this bit. They have so much to teach us. And I don't know, you know, we want to be people that are free. We want to be people that get through this. But if you're one of those people that are struggling today, I wanted you just to know that you have so much to teach us because every day you get up and you love Jesus and it's amazing. Well, I want to introduce you to my better half now. And uh, I wanted to ask Diane a few questions because often I get to speak at lots of different places. And because we have four kids, Diane often doesn't get to come with me. So this has almost been like a holiday for us, believe it or not. Um, just wandering around site without kids has just been fantastic. It's just been really weird. So give Diane a little round of applause as she comes up. Now, um, the funny thing about when I always interview Diane and ask her questions, um, Diane has this amazing ability to cry. Well, I forgot the tissues, did you? No, you've got tissues as well. It's, it's going to be okay. It'll be fine. Um, and keep talking, so it's fine. In fact, we did a When Faith Gets Shaken DVD, do you remember? And, uh, and she cried the whole way through the interview, and the producer went, I've never met anyone that cries so much and carry on talking. It's an amazing gift you have, which is fantastic. Um, obviously, they've seen the photographs of the operation, and uh, tell us a little bit how you led up to the operation, how you thought you were going to cope with the anxiety and all the things that was going on. Hi. Right, well, I'm not a nurse, and I never wanted to be a nurse, and as we were preparing for the operation, it became clear that the amount of work I was going to need to do would have been really beneficial if I was a nurse. Um, I decided to have a look, well, I knew nobody who'd been through what I'd been through. I decided to look and do the Dr. Google thing, and I found no books. I found only what I feared the most, which was forums of people who were looking after family members who had ended up becoming resentful, they were becoming depressed and isolated, and that was exactly what I feared the most. Um, yeah. And I know that you were really worried about that and that you really worried that you're going to get angry with me and those sort of things. And actually, you were really sensible in the sense that you did, went to the doctors, didn't you? And uh, you talked it through. 
Yeah, it was a difficult time. We had four children, and if any of you live in London, when it comes to secondary school, you've always got about 100 schools to choose from. So it was quite a demanding task going to visit the schools, make sure I'd done all my hours at work, make all these decisions. And I, was, I felt quite alone because Patrick was just so busy focusing on getting his workplace ready for them being without a CEO for a fairly long time, which was completely understandable. And I found myself getting to a situation where I couldn't even breathe. I'd have to sit down and make myself breathe. So I took myself to the doctors and I was given some medication to help with my anxiety because I knew that one of us was going to have to be strong to get through this time. And then in the book, When Faith Gets Shaken, your chapter's called Secondhand Smoke. Um, Now, you don't smoke, so tell us a little bit about what that was all about. So, statistics are that 80% of people who do smoke, the smoke around, you don't actually see. And it's just as dangerous, the health effects on you, if you don't smoke, but you're around people who smoke. And it's often looked at that the people who are caring for people going through things, it's quite, particularly with mental health issues, and at the time, I think you mentioned you were suffering from anxiety and depression as well. And because it's quite isolating and lonely as a carer, all the attention is on Patrick. They're all, how is Patrick? How's he coping? How's he doing? Meanwhile, I was falling apart and, and it was hard work. So we, we called it secondhand smoke, didn't we? Yeah. And I remember one day that you went into your bedroom. It's my bedroom as well. And uh, you just cried out to God. You'd had enough. So, yeah. He had the operation. He was really brave. He walked in there, and then he couldn't walk out. While he was at hospital, it, it was okay, because there's all the experts there looking after him. But suddenly, the ambulance brought him home. They put him on the sofa, and they left. And suddenly, the overwhelming responsibility of me having to do everything, he couldn't move without excruciating pain. I was responsible for his medication. I was responsible for his pin site care. I was responsible for the rest of the household running normally, kids getting to school, etc. Summer holidays are approaching. If you've got kids, you know it's not a relaxing time. And it was just all too much. And I went up to my room and I just said, God, I can't do this. I can't do this. The tunnel is just too long. We knew we had years ahead of us. And I could not see the light at the end of the tunnel. And I clearly said, heard God say to me, don't look for the light at the end of the tunnel. Have a look right now where you are. There is light around you. It is there now. And it was so true. The love and the support from our family and our friends and our church, that was the light that got us through. And it also gave us, me, our coping strategy. Some days... Most of the time, it was just day by day, just focus on that day. Sometimes it had to go even smaller, just focus on that hour. There were times it was just focus on this minute, let's just get through this minute. And that was our strategy. And I guess the whole thing around anxiety, I mean, we've talked about this a lot of time. The thing that makes us both anxious more than anything else is our kids. And uh, because you can't control your kids, you want to make life better for them. And uh, particularly little Abigail, tell us a little bit about Abby. So Abigail is beautiful. She's gorgeous. She's full of life. Uh, She's got a condition called nystagmus, which in just normal people's terms, it means she's got about 40% vision. She's also got complex special needs, which can be very challenging. Um, So when we first found out about the, the nystagmus, you feel like your world's ending. You feel guilty. You worry about the whole future. And there are times where her special needs have really affected her behaviour. There was a period of years where I didn't go through a stage of being kicked, bitten, screamed at, all those things. And at the time, you just think, I'm a terrible parent, this is never going to end. Um, But then there are times when it's just absolutely beautiful. And shall I tell them about the giraffe? (laughs) Gerald. So there's a children's book called Giraffes Can't Dance. And one night we were reading this book and it's about this giraffe who goes to the jungle and there's a dance going on. And everyone laughs at him because he couldn't dance. So he walks home lonely and he gets stopped by a cricket, as you do, playing a violin. And he said, just try a different tune. And he starts dancing to a different tune. And he was the best dancer ever. And at the end, Abigail said to me, Mom, this book's about me. I'm like, what do you mean? And she said, I can do things. I've just got to do it differently. 
And I was, that's absolutely right. So we've learned a lot. We're still learning. But every day that goes by, it's, and it does have its own anxieties, just crossing a road or just doing anything. Her normal peers of her age can do things with ease, and she really struggles. And you do worry as a parent, but yeah. And now, last question, I guess. Now, you've set up a new charity with your, um, your husband, haven't you? <laughs> so your husband suffers from anxiety a little bit, and you've given up, he's given up his salary... Um, he's given up a secure job and started from scratch with no money. Um, why have we done this again? I can't work out why. Um, but tell us a little bit why and why we think Suji Hope is important and uh, what it's going to do. So we've set it up because we had confirmation after confirmation that this was the right thing to do. And actually, it's really lovely to have the privilege of doing it and being here and one of the things that Consuji Hope stands for is we are not experts with mental health. There are plenty of people out there who are. We are experts, hopefully, communicating hope. And we want to be able to provide and create spaces for people who are suffering and struggling with mental and emotional health challenges. And one of the ways we want to do that is by creating safe spaces across the whole country in terms of groups and where you can just come and just be, and it's okay not to be okay. And during those times, it's times you'll be inspired and encouraged and informed, and it'll be led by hopefully someone who we will be working with to help become really knowledgeable about all the things that and services that are available in their local area and nationally, and just to help people flourish and grow and to become the best that we want them to be. Fantastic. Give Diane a massive round of applause. She's always a... And do myself out of a job. Thanks, babe. Um, when um, uh, we decided to start Kintsuji Hope, um, I was watching this little YouTube video. It's um, how to catch a monkey. Okay, I'm going to teach you something new here. Um, basically, you catch a monkey by getting a coconut. You make a hole in the coconut. You tie the coconut to a tree. And then you put some food in the coconut. And then the monkey comes along and it puts its hand in there. And it grabs the food. Now, the thing about it is it doesn't let go. And so the hunter comes along and it captures the monkey. All the monkey has to do is to get free, is to learn to let go of the food. Stupid monkey doesn't learn to let go. And I wonder how many times that's the same of us. We, don't, we grab hold of stuff. We grab hold of the need for significance. We grab hold of sometimes sickness being our identity. We grab hold of things and we're not willing to let go. And sometimes there's a real freedom in learning to let go. And uh, when we started Kintsuji Hope, I really felt God say, don't just start a charity, an organisation, start a movement. Start a movement of people that want to be authentic, that want to be real, that want to go into communities and just be honest. And the fascinating thing is, as Diane started to describe Kintsuji Hope to all the mums at school in the playground, they were all like, oh, I get that. I'm broken, my husband's left me, or I'm broken, I'm in debt, or this has happened. Oh, I'll definitely join a group. And these conversations started happening in the school playground. And so now what we're going to do is literally train people um, who are going to come to us. We're partnering with an organization called CWR, who are experts. Um, they're one of the biggest trainers of Christian counselors in the UK. And we're going to train them to run this in their own community. So it's going to be running in Starbucks, but never Costa. No, Costa, never Starbucks. Um, we've got prisons asking us to do it. Belmarsh, maximum security prison, so we would love this. I met the Ministry of Justice guy the other day, and he was saying, you know, we're having a lot of prisoners at the moment. They're self-harming on purpose. They're getting their wound infected on purpose, and then they're getting sent to medical so someone can look after them. He said, if you could do these groups in prison, that would be amazing. Um, schools, we've had so many schools. And um, to be honest, we have been absolutely inundated and uh, people have been getting behind us. Um, you know, people have been given small amounts monthly. It's been incredible what's happened um, just in the last couple of months. We've just been completely humbled and completely overwhelmed because I think God's doing something. I think people respect honesty and authenticity. And I think God could move across this country, not through just rushing in and telling people they're going to hell and they need Jesus, but like loving people. People don't always want to be rescued. They want to be loved and they want to be cared for. And, uh, and that's what we long to do. Um, recently also, um, Ian Duncan-Smith, who heads up the Centre of Social Justice, he's asked me to chair a group in the government looking at mental health, looking at mental health and employment, uh, maybe putting CBT centres in job centres. Imagine that. Um, so until we just sign people off on sick pay, actually we try and help them, and then we work with employers to get them um, through 
um, to look at mental health in terms of education. So as well as learning trigonometry and algebra, that we can learn about mental health as well in all our secondary schools and primary schools. Um, to look at it in terms of criminal justice and to look at it in terms of family. And, and so I'm looking to uh, maybe develop that work as well. So please pray for us as we start Kintsuji Hope. Please, please get involved where you can. We're going to show you a little video now. This is just me and my mate. We went into a church and we had a little bit of go of trying to make a pot. Check this out. My youngest son, Nathaniel, was at a friend's house. There was a confrontation with a boy that turned up and decided that he'd take a knife and stab Nathaniel with it. I feel like at that time I was in a bubble and feeling alone and not even knowing how to articulate that to anyone. I had to have major limb reconstruction surgery. Around the same time, my daughter got a condition called HSP and my dad got cancer. It was like a perfect storm of things going wrong. And I realised that the anxiety was really taking root in my life. And then you realise that actually you can't just carry on and you need to show some self-compassion. Bereavement is different for everyone. What's really important is that people are able to talk to someone that they can connect with. And through that, there's a real good healing process. And actually maybe receiving help is letting go of your pride and saying, I am really broken. And as we share in our brokenness, we share in our common humanity. The brokenness is my heart and it's in pieces. But through time, it's starting to come together again. Discovering treasure in life's scars. I love that little phrase. I think it's absolutely beautiful. The gold threads are what make us unique. They're part of our history. And as we journey with God, the repair, it takes time, it takes patience, it takes gentleness towards yourself and towards others. And it's interesting, um, one of the gain, the things I wanted to do with Kintsuji Hope was to go into communities where um, I know mental health is really, really bad. Um, so I've literally just come back from a place called Trenchtown in Jamaica, um, where Bob Marley grew up. Anyone heard the music of Bob Marley? I was in Bob Marley's home a couple of weeks ago. That's how cool I was. And, uh, but I, um, you know, a lot of people think of Jamaica as this beautiful place, and it is a wonderful place. It is an amazing place. Um, but it is a place that's torn apart by violence. And this next slide, I don't know if you can see this coming up, is basically I went to this memorial, and uh, around the bottom of this memorial are just names. Um, you can't quite see the ages. They're names of children that have been killed due to violence in Trenchtown, and uh, they start from the age of naught, and they go to the age of 18, and uh, it, they started it in 2005, they finished it in 2015, because they ran out of space, there's over 2,000 names on that memorial, and uh, the school that I went to there, it was about 65 kids, um, 80% of them have been abused, um, emotionally, every one of them been abused verbally, but emotionally and sexually, child protection laws aren't always enforced. And uh, so one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to fund a mental health counsellor to be on staff at the school. It's going to cost us less than 10 grand for a year for a full-time counsellor. All the kids are absolutely desperate for it because they recognise that, you know what, what's anger? Anger is an emotional response to pain. And so what happens is, is kids get angry because they don't process pain properly. We get angry. It's the same thing. I see it time and time again, is if we don't process pain properly, then we get angry. And, uh, and I often came away from that thinking, well, what on earth is going on? How does God feel about this? Then I looked at the picture of the memorial, and I thought, that's how God feels about that. It could almost be a picture of God himself, that when he looks at these things, that's what's going on. When I thought about anxiety and depression, and I read every book, and I listened to every talk, I, I thought, you know, I can give you a massive long list, if you like, on how to deal with anxiety and depression. I can tell you about mindfulness. I could tell you about monitoring your thoughts. We could talk about CBT. We could talk about forgiveness. We could talk about all the practical things you can do. Um, cut, take away caffeine, exercise, getting the community around you to support you, volunteering, the, the um, uh, practice of gratefulness. And, uh, and I thought I could just give you a long list. And I got a bit frustrated when I came to similar talks and it was just one million long lists. So what I thought I'd try and do, literally just in the next 15 minutes, is just talk about one thing 
and try and talk about it really, really well. And the thing I really want to talk about is this, how do we show self-compassion? Because I've realized that this is the key to overcoming anxiety, that self-compassion and self-indulgence are two very different things. And, you know, we look at the story of Elijah as a great example of this, don't we? You know, Elijah after Carmel, you'll know the story, you know, defeats the prophets of Baal. Um, It's amazing time. Um, Everything's been leading up to this uh, climax at Carmel. Everything's been leading up to this moment. And at that point, Elijah must think, this is brilliant. Book tour. Home focus. Soul survivor. New wine. Here we go. You know, he must have thought, this is it. We're off. And yet, he has a um, death threat out in his life. And he's on the run. Life's not working out the way he thought it was going to. And the reality is life doesn't always work out the way we think it should do. Test results do come back with the most terrifying news. People do lose their jobs. Marriages do break down. And suddenly, Elijah's in this place. And 1 Kings 19 verse 4, he says, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. You know, it's interesting. Um, having done quite a lot in this honest over silence thing, I... We did a conference the other day, and uh, we did a Q&A, and there, was, there were five or six questions around suicide. And one lady said, my son committed suicide, and Christians told me that he went to hell. Um, what do you think about this? It's a, isn't it a selfish act? And again, in the book, Honestly Over Silence, there's a chapter on suicide, because it's one of the biggest killers of young men. And I was like, if you're in that place where you think you're going to want to take your own life, you start to believe that everyone would be better off without you. That is a lonely painful, desperate place to be. And we have got to understand. So what did God do? What did God do with Elijah when he was in that place? Did he say, did he give him a pep talk? Come on, Elijah, cheer up, mate. You know, Zenopath, that was pretty good. Remember the kid who died and you laid on him and he came back to life? That was good, wasn't it? And the woman with the sticks, she was suicidal when you got there. That all worked out. And then there was the um, cherith ravine with the birds and the Ravens, you know, they came with the meat and the bread. That was pretty good. That was pretty impressive. He didn't need a pep talk. It just needed compassion. So he sent an angel to care for him tenderly. He was exhausted. He was told to sleep. He was told to be, have food. And then one of these most beautiful moments, I think, in the whole of the Bible where God speaks in a whisper. And he's telling Elijah, you are not on your own. We haven't got time to read the story now, but 1 Kings 19, verse 18. You're not on your own. There's loads of people who feel like you do. There's loads of prophets left in hiding. You see, self-compassion is not about an ego trip. It's about we stop beating ourselves up. We start taking a non-judgmental stance to our feelings. And so I'm here to tell you, if you're suffering from anxiety and depression, give yourself a break. Let yourself off the hook. Stop beating yourself up. And give up the struggle. And accepting something doesn't mean you're resigned to having it your whole life. Desmond Tutu often says acceptance and resignation are two incredible different things. He fought against poverty and he fought against apartheid. But he had to accept that they were there in order to fight against them. And sometimes as Christians, again, we can say really unhelpful things. I mean, if you suffer from anxiety, you probably have people go to you, you know what? You just need to trust in God more. Be like, great, thanks. I've never thought of that at all. That's really helpful. I've only had thought of that a couple of years ago. It'd all be okay by now. And the last thing that people that suffer from anxiety need is another big dose of guilt to go alongside the anxiety. I hated the term self-compassion when I first heard it. I thought this is one of those navel-gazing rubbish things. I don't want to think about it. I'm all about self-sacrifice. That's what I'm about. But I realized that self-compassion, self-indulgence, they're two different things. You see, self-compassion takes discipline. And uh, it's not endless pleasure. It's not endless glasses of wine at the end of a hard day. It's not loads of biscuits. Um, actually, it takes discipline. It's about getting to the gym. It's about um, treating ourselves with kindness. It's actually doing those things that are going to be good for us in the long run. And uh, um, self-compassion and self-pity are very different things. When we give in to self-pity, everything comes about us. It's all about me. It's all about what we want, what we feel, and no one understands our suffering. Self-pity is a really unhealthy way of looking inwards and causes us to lose perspective. We make a drama out of everything. It's completely different to self-compassion. 
Self-esteem and self-compassion are pretty different as well. Self-esteem is about our sense of worth and our understanding of our value. And for many of us, our self-esteem fluctuates according to what other people think about us. How many people follow us? Self-compassion is not about outside influences. It's about something you exercise towards oneself. True self-compassion is about recognizing that you are suffering and that we are all flawed human beings. And rather than beating ourselves, extending kindness to ourselves. What does the word compassion mean? The word compassion means to suffer with, to be conscious of someone else's distress. And maybe that's where we need to go. That's where we need to be as well. You know, the thing is this, is that so often when I have talked to people who are suffering from anxiety and depression, they think it's all their fault. Everything is their fault. Kirsten Neff says this very famous quote, instead of mercilessly judging and criticizing yourself for various inadequacies or shortcomings, self-compassion means you're kind and understanding when confronted with personal failings. After all, who said we had to be perfect? It's about saying that when your best mate is in problems, how would you speak to them? You probably wouldn't talk to them the way you talk to yourself. You idiot, pull yourself together, moron. Don't use that sort of language with your best friend. But yet we use it to ourselves the whole time. It's not your fault. I don't know if you've ever seen this film. Anyone seen this film, Goodwill Hunting? It's one of my favorite films. And uh, it's got one of my favorite scenes in the film as well. Um, Goodwill Hunting is a guy called Matt Damon, and he's basically a maths genius, um, but a very, very troubled young guy. Um, Robin Williams is the psychiatrist, and he's trying to help Matt Damon fulfill his potential. And there's this one scene in the film that gets me every single time. It's about a kid that's been abused, and he's showing a picture to Matt Damon of a back that's been bruised and bashed up. And he turns to him and he says, see this? Do you know anything about this? Matt Damon said, yeah, I know quite a lot about that, actually. You? Yeah, I know a lot about that as well. And then the Robin Williams' character turns to him and says, see this? Not your fault. Yeah, I know. I said, look at me, son. It's not your fault. I know. It's not your fault. I know. Don't mess with me. Takes another step forward. It's not your fault. And then there's lots of swearing, so I can't show it at Christian camp. I did once, got really told off. But the thing is this, is that God often... We beat ourselves up from things that we have no control over whatsoever. And we carry that around with us. 2 Corinthians, you know, um, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians 11, 22 to 33. This is this famous passage about the fawn in the flesh. I remember when I was at Bible college, we spent a lot of time debating what the fawn in the flesh was. Um, and uh, some really unhelpful person in the class said it's when Paul got married, which I thought was unfair. And, uh, but there was other people that were suggesting this and suggesting that. And at the end of the day, was it, you know, he's getting persecuted? Was it a physical element? Um, but yet Paul in this place, you know, he's pleading to God, God, take it away. Um, and it says this, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, I am strong. Paul doesn't only confess his weakness, he boasts in them. He revels in them. He knows that he, um, that is part of his strength. Part of the process of recovery is realizing healing doesn't happen overnight. Christine Kane was doing it last night, wasn't she? Nittle by nittle. We take the ground, nittle by nittle. It's about what God does with us in the dark room. It's about that processing, that anointing that comes through that sense of brokenness. That's where the gold gets poured in. About um, oh, six months, probably to a year ago now, I felt like God said to me, um, XLP reached 21 years old and like, we all said big charity, you know, in touch with the royals and famous politicians and goodness knows who else. And I felt like God say, it's um, time to let it go. I was like, hang on a minute. 
What do you mean, let it go? I'm the founder. And I don't know if you notice that founders don't tend to let go. I don't know if you notice that. And I had sort of no one to look to to work out how to do this. And, uh, and it, I felt really broken. I felt really messed up. I didn't get much encouragement. And uh, I was in a real alone place. In fact, Will was one of the most uh, gracious people, often having coffee with me and praying for me and, and stuff. And, uh, and so I really felt that this is what God was saying. And I've got to obey God more than I obey man. And, uh, and I was under huge amounts of pressure, but God spoke time and time again. And I was like, I know it's nuts. I know we have no money. I know we've got this, but God is calling us to do this, me and Diane together. And uh, so we started to look at doing the charity. And I started writing this book, um, Honesty Over Silence. And, uh, and there were points where I was like, I'm too low. I've got to stop writing this. And then I read the Psalms. And then I realized that 40% of the Psalms were laments. 40% of the Psalms were David crying out. And they often say songwriters write their best songs, don't they, when they're in a place of being real and being honest. But I remember a turning point for me was um, I woke up one morning and Diane was um, watching YouTube videos on her phone. I mean, she's worse than the kids, for heaven's sake. And, uh, and I was like, what are you watching? And she says, I'm watching this um, uh, clip, The Great Showman. Anyone seen The Great Showman? And um, it stars Hugh Jackman. I like to call him Hugh Jackman because he's big. And... Um, And basically, for those of you who haven't seen it, it tells the story of a guy called P.T. Barnum, who was quite poor, loved his kids, loved his wife, wanted to raise some money for them. So basically, what happened was he um, got this museum, uh, uh, got some money, and uh, the museum was a bit of a disaster. So eventually what he does, he starts this circus, he starts a show. And the the people in the show are the the misfits, the marginalized, the the broken, the disenfranchised, the people who hate themselves, the people that struggle with themselves. There's a giant, there was a midget, there was a bearded lady. And somehow he creates this incredible show and and he creates this real sense of belonging as well. And, you know, and for me, it's an amazing picture because I think belonging and fitting in are two different things, right? And so often in the church, we say to people, you need to fit in to be part of our church. Well, actually, they don't need to fit in. They need to belong. And belonging and fitting in are two very different things. He created a sense of belonging, a sense of being part of something that mattered. But during the film, he gets distracted. He starts thinking, hang on a minute. I'm not sure these guys are for me. So he goes off with this massive opera singer who's really successful. And suddenly the guys, they're not allowed to sit on the nice seats anymore. They're not allowed in the after show party. He's been distracted. And anyway, Diane was telling me all about the film, and I thought, yeah, sounds interested. But she wasn't watching the clip from the film. She was watching the YouTube rehearsal. And in the YouTube rehearsal, the lady that plays the bearded lady, she was basically, she stood behind this music stand, and she said, I was just too scared to come out from behind the stand. And the producer's like, well, that's the whole part of the film. That's like, you've got to be seen. This is me. This is who I am. You've got to get out there into the middle. And there's this one part where she starts to sing, I'm not scared to be seen. I make no apologies. This is me. And I felt God say, Patrick, it's time to step away from the music stand. It's time to step into that place where you think it's going to be a lonely place, but actually it's going to give you more community than you've ever had. It's time to let go of shame. Brené Brown famously says this, Shame loves secrecy, it loves silence, and it loves judgment. And the way you step out of shame is you own your story. It's time to step out. It's time to stop worrying about what other people think about you all the time. It's time to stop fighting people. It's time to start taking risks and, uh, and to step out of constant self-criticism. So it's an amazing little clip, right? So she steps out and she still looks terrified. And then she turns to her back and singers, and I don't know what happens. But then there's this explosion of joy where something just takes over her. And it's almost like, this is who I am. This is what I was born to do. And then towards the end of the song, she gets nervous. So she goes over to Hugh Jackman's hat um, and grabs his hand just for five seconds. And then she goes again. And sometimes when we step out, that big dip comes. We get nervous. And we think, I can't do this anymore. Maybe that's the point. We have to grab our friend's hand or grab God's hand and say, come on, I need to be able to do this. I need to step out of shame. And I thought this was a beautiful way to finish our time together. That the compassion that you have for others is the compassion that God would love you to have for yourself. That maybe it's time for some of us to leave home focus. And one of the most significant things we can do 
is to step away from the music stand and to start loving ourselves, accepting ourselves and realizing that God's got some amazing things that he wants to do and to bring freedom and joy. I'm going to finish by reading this. This is um, the day that we got through the Charity Commission. Um, I went upstairs and I wrote this in my journal and I guess it sort of sums up some of the stuff I've been trying to say and some of the things I feel like we need to be. And uh, these are the words I wrote that night. Here's to the future, to speaking to the broken, the lonely, the outcast, the scared, to those who don't know how valuable they are, the traumatised refugee, the abused school kids in Trenchtown, the anxious, the depressed, those who feel stigmatised, those who can't lift their head up high. We're not coming with patronising messages or black and white answers, but love. Reaching out our hand to grab yours, to walk alongside you for a while, to whisper into your ears how precious you are, that you're made in the image of a loving God who loves you so much. You are enough. You belong. And you will discover treasure in those scars. I am so done with trying to find quick fixes with the insecurities that drive my actions, with not being vulnerable. We don't want to play it safe. We're going to take a walk into the wilderness and know it's okay to be out there, being true to ourselves and following God's call, knowing it's the best place to be. So let's embrace integrity, risk-taking, authenticity. Bring on the wrestling. It's time for the journey to begin. I'm going to pray. My time is gone. Thank you so much for listening so beautifully on a very hot and sticky afternoon. You know, um, if I could have done a trailer for this talk, this is my 60-second version of the trailer, just so you've got the messages. I try and test myself on this sort of stuff. My 60-second trailer for this talk would have been, do you know one thing? Anxiety is often caring too much. Depression is the curse of the strong. That anxiety, depression, and panic attacks are people that remain strong for too long. Secondhand smoke can still kill you. Self-compassion and self-indulgence are two different things. Self-compassion isn't about being selfish. It's not even about our self-esteem. It's about treating yourself with love and kindness the way you treat other people. Overcoming shame means that you need to step out and you need to own your story because shame loves silence, secrecy, and judgment. You can be free and you can accept who you are. Grab God's hand. And let's go again. That's what we've been talking about today. <clears throat> Will, why don't you come and help us pray? Pray for these guys. Thanks so much, Patrick. Well, when I listen to you, I always. I was like crying throughout that video, so <laughs> feeling pretty emotional right now. Well, it would be really helpful, wouldn't it, just to pray, um, just as we conclude the session, I think, and just to ask Jesus to do what we can't do. Jesus, I just want to pray right now that you would, you would continue the work that you've begun in every single person in the room, including Patrick and Diane, and including me. Pray, Lord Jesus, would you be close to us today? You're close to every single person here who feels isolated, who feels like a disappointment or a failure, feels like they're not able to be honest about their struggles and their suffering. Father, we pray that we would know your love and your compassion today, the presence of your Holy Spirit in our lives. We pray to you, Lord, for change. We pray, Lord, that through our experiences of suffering, we might bring hope to others. We want to pray, Lord, that you'd use us in our church communities to be beacons of hope and places of community. Thank you that you came to touch the lives of the broken and the hurting and to offer hope to a hopeless world. And we just want to pray today, Lord, send us out. As we leave focus in the next 24 hours, would we go back to our own communities, changed and transformed and willing to have these life-giving conversations to introduce people to Jesus and your profound and wonderful impact on our lives. We ask it in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks so much for being here this afternoon in this very hot tent. I wonder if we could just give Patrick and Diane another really warm round of applause. They are utterly brilliant. I did pop back to the bookshop just to pick up a copy of the When Faith Gets Shaken book, which is a brilliant, brilliant introduction to everything that we've said so far today, and also to remind you about the new book, Honesty Over Silence, and I know that 
the bookshop will be delighted if you pop by. You can also just pick up as you go out just an introduction to the new Power of Belonging book from Mind and Soul. So there's a pre-order on there if you'd like to pick one up as you go. But have a wonderful afternoon. Thanks again for being here. Do connect with Kintsugi Hope online and uh, also with Mind and Soul Foundation. And we look forward to having a lot more conversations with you in the future.